The challenges facing San Francisco and our cities generally, they're enormous. They're also mostly political in nature, which means they could actually take years to fix or decades. And so I couldn't end this season without addressing something I hear from people in tech a lot. You know, not only that we should leave San Francisco, a whole debate in and of itself, because wherever we go, we're going to have to deal with the messy political component so many of us are trying to run from, but that actually we should just build our own cities from scratch. It's Walt Disney status, but not a theme park, an actual home. My name is Padre Friedman. I'm director of Pronomos Capital. I'm also a board member of the Seasteading Institute and the Startup Societies Foundation. Generally, I'm working on how to make government work better through markets, whether that's building new societies on the ocean or on land. I met Patri in the very beginning of my journey through the world of technology, back when I was a young and idealistic techno-optimist at 23. I volunteered for his nonprofit called the Seasteading Institute. These were folks who wanted to build like hundreds of floating autonomous cities in the middle of the ocean. It was in the first place a direct push to a human frontier that currently doesn't exist, but it was also a pretty interesting political experiment. If we could build, you know, hundreds of governments out at the sea in competition with each other, we'd end up with a really great sense after, let's say, a generation or so of what really works in terms of government. Note, Patri and I recorded this conversation way before COVID, so certain things like a note on Hong Kong are a little bit jarring. That city is, of course, no longer a wonderful counterexample of Chinese Communist Party authority. It has been completely taken over. In fact, I recently talked to a handful of Hong Kong nationals who are looking to build a new city of their own somewhere else in the world that is loosely autonomous, kind of new Hong Kong. The concept they're working with, if this were to take place in another pre-existing country, would be something called a charter city, which is what Patri is working on now, and mostly what we talked about in this conversation. He and I talked about the Seasteading Institute, international law, and the legal realities of, quote, international waters. Like, uh, can you just start a country out there in the middle of the Pacific Ocean? And building charter cities, something he tried to do, by the way, in Honduras. We worked into what I think is really the heart of his thinking. The idea that we just have to be experimenting more in governance. Picking up what works, keeping it from wherever it comes from, and just discarding the rest. From Founders Fund... I'm Mike Solana, and this is Anatomy of Next. I want to know just like a bit about your history. What got you onto this topic, the, the idea of just building new places to live and sort of, I guess, either extranational or... I guess you could say teen angst, except I'm a late bloomer, so it was more like in my 20s. After college, I wondered where I should live. And I looked at the U.S. and I said, you know, wow, this country really doesn't suit my philosophy. Like, I don't like the decisions they make. Well, you know, maybe I'm just in the wrong country. And so I researched expatriation and second citizenships in other countries and like New Zealand and all this stuff and concluded that, like, actually, the U.S. was pretty good. And the problem was that there weren't any countries that were run, <laughs> you know, in a way that seemed okay to me. And this led me to these kind of weird fields of floating cities and nation-founding projects, which had a decades-long history of people trying to start new countries on islands or on the ocean. The one thing all these projects had in common was dismal and sometimes hilarious failure. But as I dug in, I, I just thought there is something profound to this idea that maybe we need to start new countries. 
This is actually how I met you with the Seasteading Institute. Were you working on the idea of founding new countries before the Seasteading Institute? In, in what capacity? The only thing that came before the Seasteading Institute was looking at the idea of of ephemerile, of doing a festival where, okay, maybe we can't start a new country on the ocean 365 days a year, but could we get people to get together in international waters for one week a year and try it out? And that never materialized, but it turned into my interest in the Seasteading Institute, and that was my first full-time work in the well, space. Can you talk a little bit about that, actually, the idea that you could be in international waters? Why is that important? What does it mean to have a bunch of people in international waters for a week or, or whatever? That's a great question because people have a lot of misconceptions about international waters. There's a lot of people who think if you just go to the high seas, you can do anything you want. That's not at all true. So the UN law of the sea applies everywhere. But there are things about the ocean that are legally unique and important. So the flagging system or admiralty law is that every ship that's going between two countries or more has to fly a flag of some existing country. They register there. And once that ship is more than 12 miles away from a country's waters, they are like a floating embassy. They are franchising the sovereignty of that flagging state. This is a virtual association between ships and countries. So it's actually an extremely competitive market. I mean, I've been saying lately that if we could just get countries on land to have the flagging system where you could register a piece of land with any country in the world and be under their jurisdiction, it would be amazing. You know, we'd have all of the evolution of societies that we wanted, and they have that on the ocean. Of course, the downside is the ocean is really expensive. And one thing you want to do when you're out there is you probably want to anchor your ship. And when you're anchored, well, now you're in a different legal regime where you're governed by the coastal state out to 200 nautical miles. Beyond that, on the high seas, it's not that you're not governed by anyone. It's just that nobody's bothered to figure it out yet because people don't really go out there. And most likely, you'd be governed by the nearest coastal state. So international waters are they're conceptually interesting, and they have some unique legal qualities. But it's, an impor it's important not to think that it's just like an unclaimed frontier where you can go. So what could you actually do? do if you're flying the flag of the United States, for example, and you are de facto, I mean, I, I thought the whole point was, you know, you're de facto your own country out there. If you're not, if you're still the US, then how is this really a different form of government? Or I mean, what, what do you get from it? Part of how I think about all of this is that we want to start new countries, but theoretically, the idea is anything that makes government more like a market, anything that lets there be more different governments, easier to switch between governments, and governments competing for citizens and viewing them as customers. So the great thing about the flagging system is if instead of just going out on these temporary cruises, if more and more people were living out on the ocean, even if they're flying a flag of an existing country, now all the countries in the world have to compete to flag them. I'll give you an example of like a real legal difference. So if you fly a U.S. flag, you have to follow all U.S. laws, and it's terrible. Nobody flies a U.S. flag if they can avoid it. But let's suppose you fly the flag of the Bahamas, which is a flag that's easy to get but still has a good reputation. Now, if you live in the Bahamas and you're a doctor and you want to practice medicine, you have to go and get approved by the Bahamas Board of Medicine. They, they greatly limit the number of doctors who can do that. But the rule on a Bahamas-flagged cruise ship is that you just have to have gone to any licensed medical school anywhere in the world because they understand that you know it's, it's too expensive for them to go test all these doctors. They don't want to limit it. If you've gone to any place that's, that's licensed, they're fine with that. And so that's if you're on a Bahamas flagged cruise ship and you're a doctor anywhere, you can practice there. And so that's an example of the type of legal differences that you have on the ocean because things move around. You can't just control them from one jurisdiction. So say you get like 100 people together, you have a little fleet of ships. You would what be petitioning the Bahaman, Bahamian, what is this, the, the Bahama government for the rights to 
fly their flag, but then perhaps it's much more liberal style government than even their own. When I think about this stuff, I always think about in terms of different things happening at different scale. And so people get really excited and want to know how you would be sovereign eventually. But it at the beginning, if you have a small ship, you probably just want to choose one of the countries that has a so-called flag of convenience, where it's very easy to register, fly their flag, and do things that are considered legal under their flag, which is actually a lot freer than any existing country. And then over time, when there's enough of you to be a meaningful economic force, like with that flagging state, you would go to them and say, hey, we're doing something different. You know, we're not just a cruise ship. We're making a life out here. Could you extend the rights that you give us when you're franchising your sovereignty to these areas? And these areas will help us bring more people out there. Here's what we'll pay you for them. And then negotiate over time to expand the rights of that flagged entity. The thing is, it's, it's all working within a system where if the Bahamas won't agree to, I don't know, let us deliver medical procedures that have been approved in any of the major jurisdictions. If the Bahamas won't do that, then probably Liberia will. And if Liberia won't, then probably Panama will. As long as you're asking something that's not going to make them look terrible, I think that you can push the amount of autonomy that you have more and more, grow as that grows, and now you, can, you have the leverage to make it grow from there. A minute ago, you said something, you talked about introducing competition into government. This is a theme, I think, in your work for many years now. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, what, what, do, you, what do you mean when you talk about in, interjecting competition into government? What does that look like? Why is that important? Sometimes I think a lot of my ideas are just are nothing original. They're just applying types of thinking like business analysis or industry analysis to places like government that the people don't think that way. <laughs> so if you just look at government as an industry, well, you can see that it has certain characteristics. There's a small number of really big firms. It's really hard to start a new firm. Like there's no entry. You can't just start a country. You know, even if you win an election, you don't get to rewrite the constitution or all the laws. And it's also really hard to switch firms. For somebody to move from one country to another, like they're uprooting their job, their family, their life, their home. Some countries won't let you leave. Most countries won't let you come in. It's really hard. And if you have an industry where it's hard for new firms to enter and it's hard for people to switch, we shouldn't be surprised if everyone in that industry is unhappy. <laughs> like if the, if the firms view their customers as kind of, you know, their own captured cattle who they're going to do what they want with because they can't leave. Or there's like Comcast. Right. Exactly. I mean, if you look at, uh, at AT&T before the breakup, when you have monopolies or cartels and they're not threatened by disruption from startups, they do a crappy job. And so we just throw all of the romance and philosophy and political theory out the window and say it's as simple as that. And then the cool thing about this theory is it leads to an intervention strategy. It says, hey, the easier we can make it for people to move between countries, the easier we can make it to start new countries, the more we can get countries to, say, break apart their sovereignty into pieces and have people compete for parts of them, like with the flagging system, then the better a job this industry will do. Now, this all brings us to the Seasetting Institute. This is, I think, the first maybe application of all of these ideas in the context of a company for you. What were you hoping to achieve with the Seasetting Institute? If it really panned out, best case scenario, what would that look like? Why is this kind of thing important for the world? Tell me a little bit about, about your work there. So the Seasetting Institute uh, was my first full-time work in this space. It was funded by Peter Thiel. And the idea was to figure out how we can go settle the oceans, with the goal being to start new societies out there. And the reason we looked at the oceans is that at that time, 20 years ago, countries were not at all willing to share sovereignty. They weren't willing to let private individuals purchase sovereignty or even privately operate cities. And so we looked at the ocean as the next frontier, knowing that over time the human race expands 
from frontier to frontier that at some point we're going to settle the ocean, it's most of the Earth's surface, at some point after that we're going to settle space, and that historically it's on these frontiers that we've often seen innovation because you don't have the old powers having locked up the area. And so America, for example, was a radical experiment with a new kind of government that people said was crazy, and they could do it because they were in a new place without those old power structures. So we looked at the ocean as being the next frontier where we, where we could do this. The first thing we discovered as we did our legal engineering research is how difficult and expensive it is to live on the ocean and how, well, there's certain benefits in the legal structure, like the flagging system that I mentioned, there's not really any such thing as the high seas where you can just go and be free. Uh, and as a result, we, we turned to a strategy of trying to work with countries to get agreements to do seasteads in their waters that would have some degree of legal autonomy. And the benefits of, of, of doing this is, you know, it gives us a place with shallow waves and where we could clearly plug into the nation state system. And on their side, they're not giving up any of their territory. They're just providing a license for some unused water and letting us do societal experiments there. It took years of work to get any country to consider this. Uh, and we got a, a non-binding agreement with French Polynesia to explore it there. And you know, for that, we spun off a for-profit company that did environmental impact studies, economic impact studies. French Polynesia was in, interested mainly from climate resilience and blue technologies, which is something that the Sea Setting Institute kind of picked up along the way and people interested in that and, and technology for that. But then they had an election and people said that we were weird foreigners who wanted to despoil Tahiti. Oh, um, no. And the relationship got a lot cooler. And so now the Sea Setting Institute is back out there talking to other countries, both drowning islands looking for climate resilience and countries looking for economic development, trying to find a partner. An avenue that the Seastay Institute didn't actively pursue that I still think is quite viable is what we call shipsteading, is using the flagging system and doing something like medical tourism on a cruise ship where you could take people from LA to Mexico and back and do procedures. Now these procedures would have to be non-negligent, like you can't just do anything, but just like with the idea that a doctor can be licensed anywhere to practice on a cruise ship, a procedure can be approved anywhere, anything that's not negligent. I think it's a great idea. I know people who are working on it. I've worked on it myself over the years, and I think that's still viable. And then we're working on these partnerships with countries to build in their waters. But something that's really like changed over the, you know, the, the 20 years and 10 years of the Seasteading Institute is the willingness of countries to consider making agreements to franchise sovereignty within their territory. And I mean, Peter plays chess, and there's the saying that the threat is greater than the execution. <laughs> and I think that countries, uh, you know, for one thing, are facing the real threat of losing their fiat money monopoly due to cryptocurrencies. They're facing a lot of other changes in the 21st century. And one thing that seasteading was, was this conceptual threat that's kind of said to the world, hey, we really need to be able to make new legal systems and to, to copy and transplant and remix legal systems. And if there's not a way for us to do that, we will go out and make a place where there is. I'm really thankful that it's looking like maybe we can do that on land because it's a lot easier. But I think that the threat still mattered. And so that sort of brings us to our conversation on charter cities. The sort of arc of this season is how do we totally remake and rebuild the city of San Francisco. This is the city that Founders Fund is based in, the city that I live in myself. But what if we just left? What does exit look like? I mean, if we were to just leave, I think a big problem with 
pre-existing cities is the if you just leave San Francisco and you go to another city, say in California, at what point does it become San Francisco? It seems like every city is just slowly getting worse and worse and worse. Once you're locked into a way of existing, there's like this slow corrosion that happens. You're stuck kind of living in the museum of a society that used to exist. What does it look like to start something over completely? What is a charter city? Let's start, let's start with that. A lot of people don't even know what we're talking about here. What, what, is, what is that? A charter city is an agreement where a country designates part of their territory that's going to have different laws from the rest of the country. And there can be various ways that the country exercises oversight. Those different laws could be anywhere from completely different to, say, following the same constitution to being mostly the same with a few differences. And then that city is run by some other entity, whether it's a private company, which is what I'm mainly working on, or another country, which is what Paul Romer, the Nobel laureate who popularized the term charter city, suggested. Either way, it's about a region being designated to have different laws and a different operator than the rest of the country. Essentially, a city-state? Was this, is this sort of like a city-state within a nation-state? I'd call it a partial city-state, in that a city-state like Singapore is truly sovereign. And it's hard to be sovereign on the scale of a city, although we can see from Singapore that it can be very, very profitable to do so. But charter city is meaningful, even with a lot less than full sovereignty. You know, if you take a region and it gets to have different laws, different police, and different judges than the rest of the country, then even if it's much less than, than sovereign, I think it's still important. So now let's work into this backwards. I want to start with just what is the dream here? Can you just illustrate a picture for me of a working charter city? First of all, what country is it going to be in? And then what does that city look like? How does it function? How is it different than any other city that we currently are looking at on this planet? We don't know exactly where charter cities are going to be because there aren't any yet. What we know is that there's one country that's changed its constitution to enable something like charter cities to be created, and that's Honduras. They changed their constitution in 2010 and 11. It was struck down by the Supreme Court, and then they modified the constitution in order to pass something that would pass constitutional muster. And what they did in Honduras is they took advantage of the fact that their country had a city-level government and it had national-level government, but there weren't really provinces or regions. And so they created a program called the Zeta Program for Zones of Economic Development, which allows Congress and the president to appoint certain regions. And those regions can have different laws than the rest of the country. So they have to follow the Honduran Constitution and Honduran criminal law. But each zone can negotiate for parts of commercial law, where instead of using existing Honduran law, they could, for example, use the corporate law of Delaware or the, the securities law of Tokyo. They can import the best legal systems that exist instead of using what happens to be local. Other than that, the interest in charter cities, I think, at this point is mainly more like one-offs, countries that are considering authorizing a particular project where there would be a particular exception and not a program like in Honduras. Let's talk about building a charter city in Honduras. Let's say that you did it. You broke ground, you built a new city, you've imported the best law from all over the world, maybe you've invented a few new laws yourself or a new, few new ways of doing things yourself. You have a really beautiful city with tons of people, tons of prosperity, then it becomes the most prosperous region of Honduras. How long does the Honduran government sort of allow that untapped tax revenue to be untapped? How do you defend a city like this? 
Yeah, I, when you have a partnership, one thing that you always have to be concerned about is whether your partner's gonna stick to their side of the deal. One of the neat things about the Honduran program is that because they modified their constitution, there are constitution level protections about things like maximum tax rates. Another great thing in international law these days, because of the resource industries like oil and gas, is that there's an international convention where if a sovereign violates their agreement with a private company and you win, the company wins a judgment against them in international arbitration, the 120 countries that have signed this agreement will seize that country's assets in order to pay off the judgment. Now, this doesn't work everywhere. Venezuela, for example, hasn't signed this agreement and keeps all of its assets in the country or well hidden. But in the case of most countries, this works. So I think what charter cities have to worry about is more like soft defection than hard defection. They have to worry that over time, the political climate will become unfriendly. There will be all kinds of small regulatory changes. For example, the country making it harder to access the charter city, or if the host country has control of visas, making those more restrictive over time. You know, there's, there's no easy answer. Part of it is that you want to have strong local support. I would never go and build a charter city someplace because what I want to do is work with people who are from that country or that region who are looking to improve their region in a new way, try out this new kind of development where I can provide capital and expertise to help them do it. And then it's local business leaders who want to try something different. I think people sometimes have a reaction like, well, why don't you just fix the whole country? <laughs> and, you know... <laughs> I haven't tried to fix the whole country, but anybody who has, <laughs> I think, knows that it's not that easy. I come at it from a, a software background. I know as a programmer that there's only so much you can do by patching existing code and using all of the same programming languages and tech stack. At some point, you need to do a full rewrite. You need to pause and say, okay, we're going to throw all this out. We're going to redesign it from scratch and do it this different way. And part of the idea of charter cities is the insight that legal systems and the honesty of the courts are incredibly important to prosperity. And it's just, it's really hard to change those in a whole country. And it should be hard. Like, you shouldn't force on the citizens of a country sweeping legal changes or force them to suddenly be using different courts and different judges. Right, like we should be experimenting. We should be creating these things. Just like, you know, when you rewrite a, a website, you don't put it live to 100% of traffic at no. once. When you make a new prescription drug, you don't give it to everyone. So we want to take these systems, do them on empty land, and let people move into them and choose them. What are a few of these changes that you're curious about? We're talking a lot about you know, running experiments in government. What are you not satisfied with right now, and what would you like to see put in place, at least for a short time, see if it works? I generally hate answering this question because I, <laughs> I, I guess my interest is, on, is less on specific laws than on what the system is for generating those laws. And so one of the reasons I'm excited about charter cities is that we have these decades of Nobel Prize winning economics showing that democracies are not systems for producing efficient laws. Rather, that democracies tend to produce laws that benefit the few at the expense of the many. The problem is this is the opposite of what we romantically think about, but it just turns out to be what the incentives are. There's other political systems, like one that my father has designed called narco-capitalism. Poor branding, but interesting system. <laughs> where this, this same economic theory of the economic analysis of law can be used to show that this system where law is privatized should create laws that basically have the most benefit for the most people. Well, now on that, I mean, yeah, anarcho-capitalism is something that doesn't have the best branding right now, but neither does communism. And yet we <laughs> keep being told that it would work if we just tried it for real, the real, pure, good communism. 
Let's do it. Let's run the experiment. Yes, Let's just absolutely. do it. Let's have communism somewhere. Let's do it. That's the great thing that. about this is, is charter cities are a put up or shut up idea for political philosophers. For philosophies that you believe in, you're like, yeah, now that we have finally have a chance to build it, we're going to build it. It's going to be the shining city on the hill. Everybody's going to love it. It'll be like more American than America or less American than America, if that's what you want. It'll be great. And for opponents of a philosophy, they're like, ha, yeah, try it. That's perfect. They're going to see how well that works out. <laughs> and you know what? It's probably going to be some of each. And you're probably going to find that some philosophies work with some people or in some places or at some times, but not in others. Or that variants of one might work and other variants might fail. It might be true that there's, there are variants of capitalism that create hell holes and variants that create paradises. And that there are scales at which you can make a communist society. Maybe with 100 people, it can be amazing. And with 100,000 people, it's always a disaster. The whole idea here is let's stop talking about it and build them and see what works. I love that. Let's now get into uh, your actual work because you are working, you have a, a fund that is sort of investing in technologies related to charter cities or charter cities generally. Can you talk a little bit about the approach here? What is interesting about this, th this approach rather than just you know, starting a charter city yourself? So Pronomos Capital is a seed venture fund for investing in charter city projects. And by seed, what we mean here, because this is a brand new space and hopefully eventually a new asset class, so we get to make up the terms, is that we're investing in these projects when they're trying to put together a deal, when they don't yet have full government approval, and before they are, say, building something. This lets us be capital efficient. The expenses here are salaries, plane tickets, PowerPoint slides, maybe lawyer time, which is not cheap, but at least that's not most of it. But what we're not paying for is building things on land, like at most perhaps buying land or land options. And part of why we're doing this is that interest in this space is exploding, is that what we're seeing is not that there's potential maybe for the first time to do one charter city in one place, but that lots of countries are suddenly becoming interested in this and lots of entrepreneurs want to do it. And so what we think we can do as a fund is provide the central services like introductions to countries, how do you set up your own legal system and, and hire judges, how do you brand a charter city so as not to get seen as being evil foreigners, things like that for founders around the world who have local experience, local business and political connections, and can make the ventures happen. It also seems like it would make legitimate the entire concept of charter cities if there's now institutional funding available for this kind of thing. And as with, I think, most things in the world, the story of something tends to precede its reality. So once people think that something is possible, <laughs> they tend to start working on it. It's true that, that there's some legitimacy that comes from there being an institution, but at the same time, if it, we weren't close to a tipping point, then it wouldn't be enough and we wouldn't be able to deploy capital right. and, and, and we'd fail. And so I think we're seeing that it's like now just barely time when this can happen and when we can hopefully push it over the edge and help, you know, help the founders in this new space, which hasn't existed before, to you know, not make mistakes, not make the mistakes that I did when I tried to do a charter city in Honduras in 2012 and we had what was maybe the first MOU for doing one. And then six months later, their Supreme Court struck down the program. And you know we realized that they were not even close to ready to operate. It's an incredibly ambitious program. I admire it greatly. And they've been working really hard ever since then to get it up and going. But at the time, they weren't even close to ready to work with companies. And so we want to help founders to, to learn from our experience and learn from each other. Can you give me a sense of the kinds of people who are working on this right now? Who are you running into? What is motivating them? What regions of the world are they operating in? People come at charter cities from a variety of backgrounds. I'd say that the most common is some kind of 
intersection between kind of tech, tech entrepreneurship, maybe even say the, the crypto style, decentralization is king idea, and then the humanitarian side. Because at the same time, charter cities are this decentralized way of viewing law as a technology that says we need to have startup cities and startup legal systems. But then the immediate near-term application of this is to help the developing world. That's what we see as being the major market for this. So when I started working on seasteading, what I was interested in was how can we make brand new legal and political systems better than anything the world has ever seen and push things forward. I'd still love to do that in 20 years, but right now the market opportunity is if you can bring the best laws in the world and the most honest judges to countries that don't have those things, you can make a top decile governance jurisdiction without making a single new law or without hiring anyone who hasn't been a judge before. I think that there's incredible potential around the world to do something like that. What we think of we think of ourselves at, at Pronomos as specializing in rezoning land with better laws and institutions. And if land has better laws, then the people who go live there can make more. They can be more prosperous and they can be safer. And really, it turns out to be international development. Now, what keeps you up at night? What's the thing that you're worried about with all this? What stops it from moving forward? What freezes our geography in place forever? A couple of things I worry about. One of them is the fact that we're dependent on the existing system to move forward. So we're, we're partnering with countries who see this as a promising path to development, and we want to give jobs to their people and help them improve their countries. At the same time, as you remarked earlier, we have to worry about a current set of politicians may support you, the people in the country may support you, but democracies are fickle and they change their minds. What happens if the, if the tides go against us? Another thing I worry about is Diverse government is really valuable. I want to see lots of different charter cities trying lots of different remixes and combinations of legal systems. But you have to worry about what happens in the one that, say, picks the worst laws and is run by the least thoughtful people. Right. Like, you know, what if you... the entire conversation. Exactly. What if you have that one bad example? And, you know, that's another part of why I'm doing this as a fund is that I really want to be involved with the earliest projects in this space and you know, help make sure that they are bringing EU-approved medical treatments to the Caribbean and not helping people sell their lungs and hearts and (laughs) livers. Right, right. Now, what about about hope? Despite all of those, I mean, why are you hopeful that this works out? I think that, that fundamentally, law is one of the most important drivers of prosperity that unlike physical infrastructure, it is a virtual layer. So you can, in theory, like flip a bit in some system somewhere or shout something from the the hilltops and completely change the laws in a region. But we don't treat it this way. We have all these places in this world that just use the local law that they happen to grow up with. And I think that if we treated it as more of a software layer, one of my nonprofits, the Startup Societies Foundation, is working on ULEX, an open source version controlled legal system. We want to see a future where you can fork or you can combine, say, a biotech module from one person uh, with a corporate law from another person and make a new legal system. If we treat it as a software layer and advance it like code, build up our repositories of laws and apply them to, to places where they fit the best, that we could just unlock massive human potential, that it's just, it's like the lowest of low-hanging fruit, something that we're just doing in the old way that we could do in the new way. At Pronomos, we see ourselves as trying to create a repeatable process 
to rezone land with better laws and institutions. The world is full of places that don't have great laws and institutions and are much poorer as a result. You can look at North Korea versus South Korea. You can look at, at Hong Kong and how it influenced China. You can look at Singapore, Dubai International Financial Center. You can look at all these places and see that there's a massive difference in how much prosperity you have with good and bad laws. A Honduran who moves to the United States makes 12 times as much on average as if they stay in Honduras. Same person, same education, different institutions. If you could create a repeatable process for making people make 10 times as much as they make now, that is gonna make the land where you do this worth a lot more. That's gonna maybe take empty land and make it worth as much as San Francisco. It's gonna be really easy to get investment for this because if you can do this, all of the yield chasing money in the world, of which there are trillions and trillions of dollars, money which is already very comfortable with real estate as an asset class, will pile into this. Because if they can make 5.5% instead of 5% a year, because they're investing in charter cities instead of some non-law-based project, they'll happily do it. And so that's kind of the, the dream of how charter cities can explode, is we create a process to make land worth more because it has better laws and people can make more. Then all of the sovereign wealth and institutional wealth of the world piles behind taking this process and applying it to rezone land all over the world so that people can go and be more prosperous without having to move to some random single floating city. And then all that capital transforms all that land. And we have a world dotted with little zones that each copy different sets of law. But in all cases, the countries that they were in are able to outcompete and make people more prosperous. You are listening to Anatomy of Next.